0: Episode, <clears throat> episode number 19
1: on unspeakable bliss. So
2: we're going to cover a lot of ground in this episode. Uh,
1: the guest is, I don't have a guest today. It's me. It's just, just your host, Christopher. And where do I even begin? Okay. First, I'll
2: share a couple of uh, several things that we're going to cover in this episode. Then I'll talk about uh, the creation conversations, what these note cards are,
0: uh, and we'll take it from there. First,
1: we're going to go over the first three contemplations that have been written in the
2: last week what are these contemplations all about? These are in relationship to the project that I'm doing called Creation Conversations, which you can refer to the last episode and if we're friends on, uh, on my Facebook page or Instagram, the most recent pin post shares more information on that and how you, if you so choose, could engage in one of these conversations so I'll just get into that right now actually since I'm since I I began here I wrote a book I wrote and published my first book uh, actually a year ago tomorrow December 4th 2021 is when I published it and it's a book of 44 contemplations on the oneness of being essentially pointing to their poetic writings on how we are all connected and
1: our most essential nature is that of peace and happiness. And about two week and a half ago on Thanksgiving
2: day, I had this idea to finish the year with having a conversation. Uh, at least 44 conversations from now until December 31st. I've had f- three so far, three conversations of which a contemplation is born out of uh, these contemplations. I didn't know how this would go since I've never, my my writing, uh, how I write, I've never done something like this. What I mean by that is, uh, although the contemplations on the oneness of being in gods and flesh, that's the the title of the first book, which is available on Amazon, by the way, although that was based on my direct experiences with myself, with others, um, with conversations I've had, it wasn't directly tied into conversations beforehand. So with this project, I said, okay, after each conversation from the material that I discover and gather as a result of our dialogue, I'm then going to write a contemplation. I didn't know how that would pan out. And fortunately, you'll see, because I'm going to share the contemplations in this episode, it's gone quite well. So, all right, side note there. I'll be sharing the contemplations. I'm going to be going over uh, No Self Apart from the World, which is another potential book project. I'm I'm actually just going to share the notes that I have on it. And the last thing I'll be doing, and I'll I'll be providing commentary on these writings as I go through them, is uh, sharing the story of Mara and the Buddha and how the Buddha actually underwent trauma uh, very early on in his life. And well, that's what led him to want to discover the ending of that, uh, that, that trauma uh, following him around an end to his suffering. And that's not going to be in my words. I'm going to share it from this book here titled uh, The Trauma of Everyday Life by Mark Epstein. And let's just say this, I have two invitations out. I won't name their names, but I have two invitations to two really um, incredible people that I would love to have a conversation with here uh, in a in following episode on Unspeakable Bliss. So yeah, this book is really interesting because it talks about how well, the title kind of says it all, The Trauma of Everyday Life, how trauma, suffering that is uh, intolerable and unbearable, sort of how the book defines trauma, affects a lot of people unconsciously and how that ties into awake spiritual awakening, if we could call it that. And that's why I'm talking about it here on Unspeakable Bliss.
1: So that's sort of a synopsis of what we'll be talking about today. and a little more background on the
2: creation conversation before I share these contemplations. so i've been for the past 6 years having create having create, creation conversations i didn't always call them that with people. and I'm not a therapist because I'm not, I don't have a degree in therapy, but what I could say about, well, I elaborate on it in the, the pinned posts on Facebook and Instagram, but I have this idea that when two people come together and there's the intention for something mysterious, miraculous to occur as a result of their opening up to each other and having that intention as a as a basis for the conversation that the result is result can be miraculous occurrences miraculous happenings so I guess I say I'm I'm not a therapist because I've had some training in uh, clinical mental health counseling as well as traditional Western psychology, and then spiritual or transpersonal psychology, and then coaching for the past six years. And I combine all of these things, interestingly, into my method, if I could call it a method, as just having a conversation with someone and really being open to whatever occurs and arises In the moments of us sharing and from from my experience over the past six years, that has created
1: some really beautiful, miraculous results happenings for people. So
2: there's that. You, if you're interested in having uh, this kind of conversation with me, like I said, you can refer to the last, actually in the show notes of the last episode, is my Calendly link. So you can schedule a call there. I can't do this alone. I have what is it now? It's the third. So what 26, 27 more days left? And I'm my aim is to have 41 more 40 between 40 and 41 conversations. I keep saying I've had th- kind of three and a half conversations. One is we put a, a stop on the conversation and it's to be continued. So we'll say I've had four. Four complete conversations and 40 to go. And you're invited
0: if you want to experience that with me. And that's why I have written
1: this the third contemplation
2: was wow that was only yesterday
1: was that no
2: two days ago when i wrote wrote that and let's just begin there i'm going to begin with this this third contemplation
1: which is in part a result of the third conversation that i had That's all you need to know. I don't need to get in details as to (laughs) where or exactly how it was, was birthed. Uh, And as I read these
2: contemplations, similar to my book, they're meant to be
1: listened to, received in a sort of contemplative, obviously that's why they're called contemplations
2: contemplative in meditative way, so I invite you as you
0: receive this to to be in a state of listening with with your heart. Amidst the drama of life, in the struggle and the strife, great stories are told, traumas come and traumas
1: go, and yet a peace surpassing
0: all understanding lingering below the surface. In the greatest story ever told, a character comes to the surface to see that the
1: surface, the characters, the traumas, And all struggle are made from the same material. Written on the same page with itself, by itself, for itself, writer, pen, paper, all somehow made of the same material.
0: how bizarre, how beautiful, how awe Our shared and inherently peaceful being, beyond being any one thing, all war ends.
1: Recognizing our own self in all beings, all beings in our own self.
0: For when it is you versus you, who could fight who? Heaven on earth, an end to all suffering,
1: inside and out. For the one and all, all in the one who could be without. Where could any I go with not a surface below? Only no one knows where a knowing one goes.
2: Closer than close, just out of arm's reach.
1: Maybe what this eye points to cannot be put
0: into speech. And yet each word made from the very same piece. As I was reading the last part, I
1: sometimes think of these contemplations like Doctor Seuss, but the spiritual version. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, so a couple of commentaries on this comments on this uh contemplation at the end when i say only no one
2: knows where a knowing one goes all of the knows in that Part R with a K. And you know what I'll do? I'll put, I'm going to put my, the link to the Calendly, because this was in part created from a conversation. So if someone wants to participate in creating one of these in the show notes as well, below that, I'll put each of these, the first three contemplations
1: in the show notes too. So you could read what I'm Uh, what I've read here, and I did in fact uh, create a word,
2: (laughs) how awful, Uh, what I mean by that is how full of awe,
0: A-W-E slash full, F-U-L-L, And that contemplation, as well as the other,
1: the uh, the second contemplation in part helped me give birth to,
2: or the, the kind of groundwork was laid for the inspirations that created no self apart from the world.
1: And one of the reasons why I enjoy talking about
2: (laughs) this is why it's called unspeakable bliss. I can't think of the right way to say this. One of the reasons why I enjoy talking about spiritual matters, if we're going to call if I could call them spiritual matters, And I I say, if I can call them that, because it is so not spiritual, it's so absolutely, like when I jokingly say, extraordinary, extraordinary. And that, in that last contemplation, where I talk about amidst the drama of life, the struggle and the strife,
0: that everything that, we experience ultimately is made
2: out of the same one thing, which from where I'm sitting from this perspective is in fact that everything that appears is is some sort of pattern or or different uh, appearance modulation of, of uh, universe of consciousness, it's all the same thing, just appearing in, in all these different forms, which is good news. Some people say, "Well, yeah, what do you what do you do with that?" So, so what? Well, if that's really genuinely tasted, even even for a moment, for a glimpse, or then if it's beyond uh, or inclusive of all experience, because it
1: is seen that we truly are all. all made of the same material, so to speak, if we're gonna call it material, that is truly an unspeakable remembrance recognition, which is completely ordinary and already,
2: already uh, our experience. And I, I only came to experience that ironically, after having these different experiences, yet, out of these different meditative, uh, some um, involving plant medicines, psilocybin, and then others not, (laughs) because I saw that those those things were just experiences and this, what I'm
1: referring to or, or pointing to is, it's beyond any one experience, which is
0: why I, say in that, uh, this contemplation, let's see, beyond any one,
2: beyond any one thing. It's not just one of these things, because if I say that it's one of these things, then it would kind of be saying like, well, it's this, but it's not everything else. When the whole idea behind this is that this that I am speaking to and pointing to is that which is pointing, that which is pointed at the space. Between. It's, it's, it's all of it, which is why this is hard to talk about <laughs> and simultaneously really easy to talk about. So all right, now I'm just going to read the notes that I have on no self apart from the world because, well, when I write about these things, it kind of helps me orient myself around speaking speaking about it in a more clear and direct way and just trying to, yeah, kind of map it out in a way, which that's why I love Mark's book, um, The Trauma of Everyday Life, because he's, he's talking about the Buddha and apparently this this historical awakened being and how they are very much a human, just like you and I, and they endured, this, this person endured trauma and suffering and was able to end
0: that for themselves and then help other people end it too. Okay, so I think it was in his book, actually. This is interesting to see how this all tied together. The,
2: two nights ago, I was I was reading this and I read the words, which I've read before in other books, no self apart from the world. And when I read that, I said, yeah, that 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 has a feeling of of it fits, of, of that fitting. And so I ran over to my computer it's close to midnight, and I just in 15, 20 minutes, typed out what I'm about to share with you. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna share it. And again, this is why this is actually really helpful to me too, because I'm thinking through the potential of this. And then if if this, what I'm gonna read actually will turn into another book project, because
0: it just might. And uh, there's something about, exhausting the seeking
2: mind or taking the mind to its limits, where I feel that that's like uh taking that energy to the energy towards wanting to end suffering in a in a way to uh, and 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 applying it as much as one can, kind of like a a devotional practice of seeking in a sense even even though some some people and this is this is one of the things that some people say oh well if i'm seeking and i'm already it then there's no point in me seeking but if we're really honest with ourselves and if we don't fully feel at one with all and peaceful then the
1: seeking can actually be used mindfully artfully in right relation as a prayer in a sense to
2: continue to to go on that path instead of what is sometimes said is like oh well then there's no point there's no point for me to do this and from one perspective yes absolutely and that's joyous and beautiful and then for another perspective that's where nihilism and like this pessimistic kind of um, depressed way of thinking, which can sometimes turn into a personality of giving up and despair. and, And
0: I guess the point of what I'm saying is seeking does in fact
1: Help us. Our efforts are not for nothing.
2: Ultimately, maybe they, they are for nothing, but from a really beautiful place, not from a place that's nihilistic or continuing to create suffering, something like that. All right. Get on with it, Mr. Kent. Here we go. No Self Apart from the World. That's the working title. The book you hold in your hands is many things. At the same time, it is only one thing. And as crazy as this might sound, it is also no thing. How's that for an introduction or a forward. Let me try and explain what I mean by that and why it's actually not crazy at all. First of all, this whole book is merely an attempt at me trying to point to something so massive and sizeless, it literally feels either totally impossible or at least very close to impossible. But let's give it the old college try, shall we? This book is a hypothesis in the sense that if what I say has truth within it, or if it at very least points toward the truth, then by my estimation, It acts as a hypothesis where one can, in a sense, orient their reality around and in alignment with what I am sharing here. And one, the reader, the one experiencing
1: this obviousness of what I am referring to as well.
0: I'm going to read that last part again. What I am sharing... uh, This book
2: acts as a hypothesis where one can, in a sense, orient their reality around and in alignment with what I am sharing here, and they can
1: experience the obviousness of what I am referring to as well. If the ground is fertile, let's say.
2: This book is also an ontological description claiming essentially one thing, We are all made of the very same thing, and that same thing can be called consciousness, God, love, whatever it is, because it doesn't really matter what we're calling it if it's just one thing. It is all the same stuff and space and the space around it, because it's all one. I aim to describe why that is the case from a logical and logically metaphysical perspective. The big aim here is to debunk the myths that the reality we live in is somehow fundamentally separate from something else, hence the title, No Self Apart from the World. So side note there, in some forms of Christianity, other religions too, I I imagine, uh, I'm just referring to Christianity because I'm familiar that this exists, there's this very clear creator is somehow like essentially fundamentally separate from created. It's like creator over here, created over here. And what I'm putting forth in this podcast and in this, the potential book is that God, this fundamental separator, whatever that is. And then the creation. Well, it can only be made of itself. (laughs) If God created, let's say earth and man, and then there's this separated line that God goes, somehow I'm separate from this. Well, then in what, how, how, how could there be anything other than
0: itself? Now, the thing about this is, is The, the the claim is something like this:
2: There's individuals over here. Let's say here's God. It's fundamental separation, Earth, and all human beings. What I'm saying is that each human being, although different from from that God, and so I'm not denying that there there's some there's a there's these differences in appearances. However, it's all made of the same thing. So I'm not claiming that I remember when I was God that created everyone and I'm omniscient and can do, have all sorts of magical, mystical powers. Although being a human being is quite a miracle in and of itself, the chances of, you know, you wanna see spirit, you wanna see a miracle. I say sometimes and when I'm having conversations with people, I say, look, it's spirit moving matter. (laughs) because it's made of the same thing right and to to be here in this human form is a very statistically very very low 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 possibility like so ridiculously low there's a there's some graphic on it it says that the chances of you being alive of me being alive of anyone being alive is something like if the world were covered with water the whole globe were covered with water and a, a turtle popped its head out of the water, ran in a random location, and then there was a, a, one of those round uh, life vests floating around, the chances of you being born, of you being here right now in this moment and continuing to be alive, that's even, even less of a chance, this is just being born, is equivalent to that turtle popping its head out of the water and its head popping up inside this, the flotation, the life, the round life uh, flotation preserver thing, which are both randomly placed. I mean, the chances of that happening are so, so close to zero. Anyway, look up the graphic. It's really cool. My idea is that we are we are somehow different from, but in, in a way, um, holographic. Yeah, yeah, holographic is the right word here. So within each self, within each different human, there's like a, a map of the, the larger, we could say cosmos, and then also the smaller. If we go infinitely in, making going infinitely smaller to observe the atoms, the whatever's beyond that, it's it's holographic. So within each aspect, the whole is contained. So we are a part of the whole and simultaneously the whole, the whole universe, God, whatever it is that created us, would be absolutely and completely incomplete without us, without you, without me. And I don't, I don't see how that, I don't even see how that is, uh, how it could be otherwise. Or how anyone, if, if, if God is that which created everything, and that's why I use synonyms like consciousness
1: or awareness just this this, that which is beyond any any single
2: object and yet gives rise to all objects and ultimately all objects are made of again the same material as that thing so yes there is a finite mind yes there is some kind of a there is some kind of a qualitative difference between each human and this this kind of all knowing energy if, if we're going to call it that but it's not fundamentally different it's 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 actually quite the opposite inextricably connected it cannot be otherwise it's very obvious to me so that's <laughs> a huge side note on this this sentence here, the big aim here is to debunk the myth that the reality that we live in is somehow fundamentally separate from something else, hence the title, No Self Apart from the World. Further, this difference is not just with what I just referred to in some forms of Christianity, where there's a fundamental difference between God and then the created, but further, this seeps into spirituality itself. There's a rejection of the world, I just think that's simply confusion where some some people will say oh it's not in the world spirituality can't be found in the world it's not a worldly thing it's not money it's not whatever whatever it is and there's this thought that it's only in meditation which is a step that is a step in hinduism to be absorbed in bliss to be absorbed in uh ecstasy and joy only in meditation but not in in worldly life is is called nerve kalpa something like nerve kalpa samadhi and this is a samadhi that is before sahaj or sahaja i think samadhi which that means a samadhi a a bliss a peace that is beyond a temporary state that is beyond the yogi out meditating and only experiencing that bliss because that's that's still not the ultimate,
1: the ultimate expression is to see and experience that all is God, love. And that
2: th- that this reality that we live in, this dimension, this very right now, where you are, where I am, this is it. I think that's that's exactly what's being being said. Uh, okay, so I'm going to continue here. There's no rejection. There's no rejection anymore in what I'm talking about. There's facing up to, oh yeah, this is it. This is it. Whatever it is is this right now experience. You know, we're not saving up for an afterlife or, or we're or not meditating to then get somewhere. The, the, the mind seems to want to create these fantasies of it's going to be better in the future what if it's what if it already
1: is perfect now and there's always room for improvement i'm going to get to that point at the end of this
2: all right and and by the way i encourage you if you are listening to this if there are things that you want to explore with me around these things go ahead and comment and i'm happy to talk about this but i definitely encourage you to listen through the whole thing because <laughs> As I speak about these things, there's like all these different side places that I can go into that I'm doing my best in this short video to cover them. So I'm saying that now because there was a a side piece that I almost went into, but I didn't because I know I address it a little bit later in this uh, no self apart from the world. Thing. So give the whole thing a listen and then uh, share your comments because I might address the thing that you're, you're, you're thinking that I, I might not address. So where were we? The idea here is that what you are, what I am, is essentially one and therefore the same
0: as what Jesus experienced, Buddha, at least in part. So yes, we all have individual
1: journeys and they are all
2: uh, inextricably connected, including that of any other being that has walked this planet, is walking this planet, or will walk this planet. It is not that the individual self does not exist or that suffering does not exist. So I'm not denying the individual self, nor am I denying suffering. It is that these things exist. They are just not what we actually think they are. They they are something other. They are actually something different because of a warped, uh, they're appearing to us as uh, not what it actually is because of a warped lens that we look through due to some sort of trauma. We do not see and experience reality Clearly. So, also, and nor seeing through the lens
0: of a, a human being. <laughs> I'm going to hold that thought. <laughs> I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right
2: now. So, also, I describe a roadmap of sorts for taking off the glasses of trauma that's what will if if i do in fact write this book so help me god <laughs> that's going to be part of it which is a road a road map and that's the, the thing because all all maps all all journeys lead to the same place so i can't possibly cover the entire terrain but i can talk about what has been useful and helpful for me and what appears to be helpful for others from an ultimate point of view this book wants to tell you what you are, how, how preposterous, and why you are perfect as you are. And you can check that via your direct experience based in what I put forth. I actively invite you to not believe anything I say, but to test and see if what I say is true in your own experience. So that's it, it can sound quite pretentious, right? When I say this book aims to tell you what you are. But I'm I'm basically saying, here are these ideas. Is this true? Do you experience what I'm saying is true in your own experience, or is it otherwise? And that's that's completely fine if it's otherwise. This is just what I'm <laughs> the best way that I could put these
1: things, things into words um, in a way that I feel could be useful. And two. This book claims that although we are perfect, there's still a path to be walked,
2: traumas to heal from, suffering, and a sense of separation to awaken out of. And there we have it. That's what I was referring to when I mentioned Buddha and Jesus. We all each have our own our own unique path. And that's kind of, I do think that there is this element of that's although all made of the same material perfectly unique at the same time what a paradox right i think that's the thing a lot of this stuff
1: becomes paradoxical and that's the the last piece that i wanted to uh
0: Talk about and uh, so i'm going to use a i'm going to use a okay. metaphor that's coming to me here about about this and i didn't make this up I've, I've heard this elsewhere this idea that
2: we
1: are perfect and yet there's always room for improvement i think jack i've heard jack
0: Hornfield talk about that And the metaphor that I want to give is
1: someone in a deep hole. Let's say there's someone in a deep hole and that deep hole is representative
0: of suffering. And someone comes over to that hole
2: and puts their hand down into that hole to help the other person out of that hole. And the person outside the hole saying, come on, let's go. Here's my hand. And the other person is in the hole and they're looking up at the hand and they're like, that's not going to help me. That hand is not going to get me out of this hole. And the guy standing outside of the hole is like, I was in that hole last week. And this is exactly how I got out. So grab my hand. I don't know, (laughs) I don't know that what I'm sharing here is the hand for everyone. And I also don't know if I'm the person in the hole or the person outside
1: of the hole, because that's the trippy thing with this. As the Dalai Lama said, you want to talk about
2: peace? He said it probably in a more kind way. <laughs> he said there will be no peace for anyone unless there's peace for everyone so if we are all inextricably connected this is simply my best attempt to help to serve and to be helped and to be served cuz as far as i can see we def- we are all in this together and so i'm i'm using this last analogy of the person in the hole because there could be someone in a hole And there could be a hundred thousand different ways out of that hole, or for them to recognize that they were never in a hole to begin with. And that is kind of the thing that I'm pointing to here. And yet it's not denying that there is a certain set of steps, a certain set of traumas, a certain set of ways of unlocking that which needs to be unlocked for each individual to free themselves, to liberate themselves from their
1: own suffering, which is entirely
0: not only is it possible, I feel that that's that's exactly what we're uh, living living as humans, being aware. And, and recognizing how it is all perfect. Hmm. I'm thinking of the
1: Ram Das's teacher, Neem Karoli Baba.
0: It's funny because his book is sitting underneath my laptop, propping it up right now be here now where Ram
2: Das is thinking about wars that are going on and he's there meditating and doing these practices with, with his teacher. And his teacher says to him, he's like, can't you see it's all perfect. And a lot of the times it's really hard to see how it's all perfect. A lot of the times I don't see how it's all perfect. And so that's, even when I'm, sometimes when I do see how it's all perfect, that's uh, why I, I do what I do. And when I don't see that it's all perfect, that's why I do what I do. I'm sitting here, I continue to look over at
1: this beautiful, beautiful statue. I believe it's called the Suffering Yogi. And it's this man in a a uh, loincloth
0: bent over with his face in his hands. But is he suffering? Are those tears of joy and bliss It's hard to say. I don't know. Ah, Wow.
2: This is like a journey. This podcast This feels like a medicine journey. (laughs) How are you doing? Checking in with you. Thank you for listening this far. If you have, I think this is the longest solitary podcast I've done, but I'm really enjoying it. And I hope that you are too. So, I do wanna read some of these excerpts from Mark's book
0: and I think that will tie some things together. And I'm gonna read the other contemplation that I wrote from the second conversation that I had. Yeah, the, I'm really feeling the, <laughs> the
1: intellect. It seems the mind can only do so much. And believe you me, if you can't tell, my mind wants to figure it out. It wants to. <laughs> but then the, the the heart element comes in and it's like this softening of like, oh yeah, yeah. Maybe I can't figure it out. Maybe it doesn't need to be figured out. Maybe it is all perfect. Maybe that's what I'm talking about.
2: <laughs> and I'm thinking of uh, this wonderful, very short documentary on Netflix. It's called Ram Das Coming Home. I've just had a conversation with someone about this recently. And it has a, to do with putting that seeking seeing that so maybe seeking is hopeless to absolutely it's like damned if we do and damned if we don't well when i try to get awakened and yet i real i know that i already am awakened all of my attempts are just like the uh the donkey with a hot dog in front of it tied to its forehead the one step that it takes towards it one step away it is and maybe that's that's the case. But my hypothesis with what I'm sharing is if that's done as an act of sincere, authentic devotion and prayer, then that is our attempt in seeking is in fact a form of surrender because we're not leaving out, we're not copping out, we're still putting our efforts and our love and our self forward in, in whatever it is,
1: any anything that we're doing. And so uh, in
0: that short series on Netflix with Ram Das, he
2: looks at a Hanuman, a statue of Hanuman, which is the
1: Hindu god of service, and maybe maybe love,
0: for sure service. who's a monkey. And he's having a dialogue with this, not
2: with the statue, but he's tapping into the heart of this deity.
1: And he says, who are you? Ram Das says, who are you? Monkey man or something like this. And the most,
2: one of the most peculiar and profound responses comes through Ram Dass in the form of an answer from
0: Hanuman And Hanuman responds, when I don't know who I am, I serve you. When I know who I am, I am you. When I don't know who I am, I serve you. When I know who I am, I am you. It's like the love song of the loved and the beloved,
2: where if I don't know who I am, I'm being the ideas to me to be of service. And when I know who I am in the knowing, knowingly in the knowingly godhead (laughs) then there's just the sense of being pure being and if not there's a sense of devotion putting that seeking that effort that right action towards doing and saying well i don't i don't exactly know who i am i'm not exactly identified with that all peaceful all connected self okay well so if i'm not my job is clear then i'm going to use as much as I can
1: my action and efforts towards that which appears to be outside me,
0: God, and and use all of my actions as a prayer, as an act of devotion. And again, that brings in the whole... um, beautiful paradox that we're perfect as we are and yet there's always room for
1: improvement speaking of improvement i am going to be able to be of
2: better service
1: if i go take a quick bathroom
2: break i gotta pee so i'm not gonna stop the recording i'm just gonna put it on mute little contemplative med- meditation if you will, break, or maybe you got to use the
0: bathroom too. I will be back in a few minutes, a couple minutes. Okay. We're back. I'm back. All right. I think I've
1: tried to say what is unspeakable (laughs) through word through my own
0: being to the best of my ability. And there's always room for improvement. So, the trauma of everyday life.
1: I gave a little synopsis of it earlier in the show. I don't remember exactly what I said. Anyway, it's a book about how there's different kinds of trauma that people endure. A lot of it talks about uh, trauma in early childhood and how that's
2: not remembered by people. And yet this trauma can have a tremendous influence on,
1: in their life. And it talks about how the therapeutic
0: relationship can, and meditation can help resolve
2: a lot of these traumas. And it also talks about how uh,
1: Buddha, let's, I'm going to give this as context for the part that I'm going to read. He Lost his mother. I didn't know this. This was news to me. He, his
2: birth mother, died a week after he was born. And how this Mark is putting forth uh, that this caused him trauma. Mark, that's the author. Mark Epstein is putting forth how this was a traumatizing
1: experience for the Buddha, losing his mother. And how that's interwoven into his path of awakening out of suffering. And I'm going to
0: share with you an excerpt on moments before the Buddha awakened uh, and his encounter with this being named Mara, M-A-R-A.
1: And right before that, right before that story,
2: there's a a quote here from Ajahn Chah, a Thai forest master that I wanted to share too. So I'm going to first start by sharing that. This is a quote from Ajahn Chah. That's A-J-A-H-N. First name Cha-C-H-A-H. In our practice, we think that noises, cars, voices, sights are distractions that come and bother us when we want to be quiet. But who is bothering whom? Actually, we are the ones who go and bother them. The car, the sound is just following its own nature. We bother things through some false idea that they are outside us and cling to the ideal of remaining quiet, undisturbed. Learn to see that it is not things that bother us that we go out to bother them. See the world as a mirror. It is all a reflection of mind. When you know this, you can grow in every moment and every experience reveals truth and brings understanding."
1: I'll just read the next paragraph, uh, Mark's commentary on this. Ajahn Chah
2: framed his discussion in terms of the minor irritations that arise in silent meditation, the bothersome noises, sights, and distractions that make meditation challenging. But he was also, by implication, talking about the major irritations of old age, illness, and death. When he said that every experience reveals truth and brings understanding, he was not excluding the most traumatic ones. For Ajahn Chah, the ability to see the world as a mirror, to relate to it with attunement, engagement, and care, that a parent naturally showers upon an infant was the greatest accomplishment. And I'm going to offer a little perspective on this too. When Ajahn Chah says, we bother things through some false idea that they are outside us and cling to the ideal of remaining quiet and undisturbed. Even when he says, we bother things instead of things bothering us, like the noises in meditation, which can also be a, a metaphor for, Every obstacle that we encounter every single day in life, the nature of those obstacles or things that bother us, even even the arising bothering isn't a bother. But to think that it's a bother, or to think that the obstacle is an obstacle, is the bothersome thing. What I mean is, if I'm sitting in meditation. Or going about my day and something challenging, something bothersome arises, there's a huge difference if I immediately internalize and even just emotionally inside react to it and start the process of resisting that noise or that challenge or whatever that bothersome thing is versus In a meditative way, in a contemplative way, if I simply see whatever that is and just see it and not be bothered by it. So, for example, the the dog starts barking in the background right now. And I could go into this dog should be barking. I'm doing a podcast. It's loud. It's disruptive, whatever it is. Or I could just watch it and see it. And even watch watch the bothersome like oh okay I'm noticing that I'm bothered by that. There is already quality 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 of not being pulled in by it, and then creating more resistance. I'm just observing. Oh, okay, so my ir- irritation around that is arising. That doesn't that doesn't mean I don't do something about it. I could still yell out of the room popo be quiet or close it or, or still take some action but whether or not it continues to build as an attachment that i'm pushing away in that case it would be pushing away if there's something that i liked
1: i might be clinging to it there's there's a a level of equanimity that's being
0: being developed uh, And that to me is what
1: a meditation practice is about. It's just kind of like a prayer to see things as they are by practicing seeing things as they are. (laughs) By seeing what arises in the body, in the mind, in the world
2: and wanting to understand it. Because maybe if I understand it, maybe if I can relate clearly with it, maybe what I'm seeing is not actually what I think it is. I.e. maybe the suffering is
1: not actually suffering. Maybe it's something else. And if I can see the part in
0: myself that's bothered and be with, what is that? Maybe that energy will free itself up.
1: All right, without further ado,
0: how long has it been, at least an hour? I, don't, I have no idea. I'll
1: see how good I am at guessing. I think it's been, I'm gonna say I began this
2: at 1230, so I think it's been one hour. I'm going to. It'll be interesting to see.
0: I'm gonna upload it where that's, how good my internal clock is. Okay, so
1: I'll just paraphrase this first spot,
0: spot this first part. So it talks about how Buddha,
2: the Buddha f- found this tree to meditate under before his awakening. And I can't find the, the actual quote, but apparently he said something to himself like, I'm not going to move from this spot. Into I, I don't care if my body, uh, literally my body decays, I'm not moving until I reach enlightenment, which is an interesting ultimatum that he set for himself only to, for him to come to the recognition, whatever, how many days later, that someone comes and offers him some uh, rice and milk. I think it was rice, rice milk, rice soaked with some milk. And and he has this recognition of, well, you know, if I have a little bit of this, I can actually sustain my body. Or if I have this bit of enjoyment, it's really funny to me (laughs) that he starts out with this very extreme view which that's all about what this book is about and then he comes to find almost um, the opposite which is not fully rejecting all of these things and allowing himself to um, have a bit of enjoyment and then well I'll I'll leave that there because this story I haven't even finished this part I got inspired to create this podcast because I was I was reading this chapter and uh, felt the inspiration. So he finds the perfect spot to sit facing East. And I will begin there from this spot. Buddha had to face his demons. He was challenged in a series of dramatic encounters by his alter ego, Mara, a famous figure in the Buddhist world. Mara is often depicted as a devil, An embodiment of evil, death, or darkness, a kind of Buddhist version of Satan. But this is not quite right. In South Asian cosmology, Mara was actually a godlike figure, a lord of the desire realm, whose efforts were directed at keeping the Buddha from freeing himself from the cycle of death and rebirth. As the lord of desire, he represented the forces of clinging or craving that keep people attached to the world. Because of this, he was also intimately bound up with trauma. In psychological terms, Mara represented the Buddha's ego, that desperate longing for a self and a world that are comprehensible, manageable, and safe. As ego, Mara represented the endless attempt to shield oneself from the inevitable traumas of this world. One of his nicknames was the drought demon because of the way he tried to hold back the waters of change. Mara was roused by the Buddha's discovery of his stable spot where, where he found a sit. This is what kind of awakened Mara, this stable spot where he found to sit uh, bef- right before his final awakening enlightenment. He assailed the Buddha with all kinds of trauma, trying to dislodge him from his seat of stability, much as an infant's ruthless attacks on a parent threaten her poise and her self-confidence. From the stable spot of his newly recovered implicit awareness, the Buddha was attacked by waves of Mara's forces. There are many versions of the story, depending on which sutras are consulted, but all contain three essential elements. Mara attempted to defeat Gotama, that's Buddha, Gotama is his first name. Mara attempted to defeat him with three basic strategies, armed attack, assertion of superior merit, and attempts at seduction, clinging and aversion. The Buddha described this series of encounters as the deepest struggle he ever had to face, more difficult than anything he went through, even at the heights of his austerities, which this dude was starving himself and really going very, very
1: into these austerities. So for it to say that this was more difficult than anything he went through, even at the height of his austerities, these are some hard tests that
2: he's facing from this, this demon yet he had found the perspective that enabled him to survive, not going out, to bother the forces assaulting him, he was able to see them as psychic reflections. Only when Buddha was able to experience the desires and fears that threatened to overwhelm him as nothing but impersonal and ephemeral conditions of mind and body did they lose their power to mesmerize him. Whoa, let me read that last sentence again. Only when Buddha was able to experience the desires and fears that threatened to overwhelm him as nothing but impersonal and ephemeral conditions of mind and body did they
1: lose their power to mesmerize him. In most versions of the story, the forces of aggression
2: came first. Mara appeared to the Buddha as a warlord mounted on an elephant commanding a legion of threatening troops. Intimidating. He unleashed army after army, 10 in all their psychological equivalents portrayed as the following sensual desire, discontent, hunger, and thirst, craving, lethargy, fear, doubt, restlessness, Longing for gain, praise, honor, and fame. And extolling oneself while, dispar- while disparaging others. So this is the these ten army, armies, which really beautifully and artfully are a lot of the inner demons that a lot of people do wrestle with. Mara hurled nine storms at the Buddha to be of wind, rain, rocks, weapons, embers, ashes, sand, mud, and darkness. But the Buddha had found an unconquerable position, an immovable spot from which to experience these assaults. And they rolled off him. As a child's attacks melt under the indomitable resolve and patient love of his parents. Mara's arrows, of aggression turned to flowers, his rocks to garlands. The rains failed to wet the Buddha, the winds Gotama. The winds failed to ruffle his composure. The embers, ashes, sand and mud turned to blossoms and incense and the darkness faded into Gotama's light. In later versions, developed in Mahayana Buddhism, the immovable spot where where Gautama sat became known as Vajrasana or adamantine throne in reference to its unshakable stability. The relationship of this diamond seat to the mind of the mother was not only implicit as the story continued it became ever more clearly portrayed. Mara's next attack was his most devious. It went straight to the heart of the Buddha's trauma and required him to reach deeply into himself to manifest what his dreams had awakened. In the most famous scene of their encounter, Mara directly challenged Gautama's sense of self-worth by asking him to prove that he was deserving of enlightenment. By what right do you claim this seat? Mara asked him, pointing to his own armies. He was obviously an important figure, a celebrity in his own right, with legions of followers at his beck and call. Who will be your witness, Mara demanded. Gotama who was clearly alone with no one to speak for him, appeared to have no good response. What kind of answer could, come, could he come up with when his whole approach had been based on a solitary pursuit? Having abandoned his family and friends and been forsaken by his five ascetic companions, to whom could he possibly turn to testify on his behalf. Mara's challenge was aimed directly at the most vulnerable aspect of the Buddha's psychology. If we understand Mara as the Buddha's shadow, then his question was really the Buddha's own question about himself. Deep down, the story suggests the Buddha had unfinished business even at the very brink of his enlightenment. He was still missing something in himself, still grappling with issues of self-esteem, still trying to understand his delicate nature, still suffering from the unworthiness Mara was giving voice to. The Buddha had another epiphany at this point. He talked about it in retrospect in language that once again evoked implicit relational knowing. As if he had remembered something long forgotten, salvaged something he did not know he had lost. There are many ways to interpret these words of the Buddha, of course, but there is no question his breakthrough involved a resurrection of forgotten feeling, a recovery of unknown boundless presence at the heart of his aloneness. Suppose a man wandering in a forest wilderness found an ancient path, an ancient trail, traveled by men of old, and he followed it up. And by doing so, he discovered an ancient city, an ancient royal capital, where men of old had lived with parks and groves and lakes walled round and beautiful to see. So I too found the ancient path, the ancient trail traveled by the fully enlightened ones of old." This was what what Gotama said in response to Mara. When asked by Mara to produce a witness to his self-worth, Gotama reached out and touched the ground with his right hand This earth is my witness, he replied. And as if in agreement, the earth roared and shook. And as the Bodhisattva touched the great earth, it trembled in six ways. It trembled, trembled strongly, trembled strongly on all sides, resounded, resounded strongly, resounded strongly on all sides. Just as the bronze bells from Magadha ring out when struck with a stick, so this great earth resounded and resounded again and again when touched by the hand of the Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva. In many of the early representations of this famous earth touching gesture, the trembling of the ground was given anthropomorphic form, the upper body of an earth goddess named Savara, might be butchering that, or the stable one, emerged from the ground and bowed to Gautama with her palms together. As if the symbolism of touching the earth were not enough, the artists who later told the Buddha's story made it concrete a mother figure appeared and affirmed her connection to the Buddha, erasing his last vestige of self-doubt, testifying to his inherent worthiness and frightening Mara away. In a fascinating account of the role of the earth goddess in Buddhist iconography, the scholar Miranda Shaw traced the evolution of the deities representations in Buddhist art. She pointed out that in some version of the story, the Earth Mother appeared not once but twice. In her first appearance, she bore witness to the Buddha's virtue and scattered Mara and his armies. They then regrouped and she emerged for a second time, now with a thunderous roar, threatening gestures and a powerful quacking, quaking, Thus, two complementary aspects of the mother were embodied: in one, she was a nurturing figure, and in the other, she displayed her aggression. In addition, Shaw pointed out how intertwined the mother and the Buddha's seat of enlightenment were. The base of the Buddha's throne intersected her womb, and the first sculptures to emerge in Buddhist culture, she herself, was the stable platform of his awakening. Over later years, she was portrayed as wringing rivers from her hair, washing away the forces of Mara with grace cascades of water pouring down from the top of her head. She could also be seen offering the Buddha a spherical vessel in her outstretched arms, a symbol not just of fertility and abundance, but also of the pregnant void
0: of Buddhist emptiness.
1: All right, I'm gonna leave it there
2: because I haven't even read that far and I just
1: wanted to share, there was just something so beautiful about
0: There's something beautiful to me about facing what's uncomfortable with a strong, committed devotional determination. And not facing it in a way
1: where we're ready to fight and battle, but facing it with this. Softness and calm equanimity that the Buddha is doing, which is inspired by the mother
0: who comes to the rescue in a sense. It's facing that which is uncomfortable. Not, Not facing it like,
1: all right, what is it? here I am, because that could in fact just be
2: more of the same kind of trauma playing itself out versus itself, but it's more so this calm presence, courageous presence of being with what's uncomfortable, not fighting it, nor
0: running away from it. And I think that's what frees up our energy. That's the Awakening process of alchemizing traumas. Mm. this is actually a perfect
1: time to come to an end to this podcast
0: and just before i do i'll share the second contemplation which is you'll see the same theme Tentatively, this is called the mazeless maze. To begin with,
1: no easy way out of what I am not inside of.
0: Constrained by the limits of freedom itself.
1: So free I appears bound by my own boundlessness.
0: Informed by my own formlessness. The easy way out was seeing nothing to escape from. To begin with. Mm,
1: okay, well, thank you for joining me today. I had a lot of,
2: really a lot of fun sharing this. Enjoyed sharing this, and if you want to participate in the creation conversation, please see the most recent Facebook post, Instagram post that's pinned, and it will have the the info uh, in the show notes to this podcast. I'm going to put the contemplations that I shared along with the material from no self apart from the world that I shared and the Calendly link too. So you can schedule a creation conversation there. I, so I'm not going to say who I've invited, but there are two pending invitations for the podcast. And I have a feeling that both of them are going to, uh, agree to have a conversation with me. So I eagerly await sharing that conversation with you, wishing you an incredible, meaningful
1: rest of your day. And I will see you on the next episode or in one of these conversations.
0: I'll see you in the next episode of Unspeakable Bliss. And yeah, thank you for
2: deciding to spend whatever it's been, 90 minutes of your your time with me today. I hope this was valuable, insightful for you. Let me know how, if it was, in the comments or send me
0: a message if you have my information and I would be happy to know that. Okay, see you soon.